Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring hosts Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here is Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 35, being recorded on Wednesday, July 6, 2016. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as always, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Scott. It's been like two weeks since we last chatted. I'm sort of in Scott withdrawal. Uh, how was your 4th of July? It was awesome. You're you're sort of in withdrawal, or you're, you enjoyed the break? I'm fully in Scott withdrawal, but I just didn't want our listeners to know how much I missed you. Ah, uh, that's, uh, that's both sweet and kind of creepy. Uh, July 4th was awesome. We are in North Carolina and there's a little place in the mountains here called Blowing Rock, which is near Boone, North Carolina. And we went up there and it was, it was awesome. Very Norman Rockwell with the fireworks and the little parade and the fire truck all decked out and American flags and clowns, all that good stuff. Very cool. And were you, did you find a barbecued hot dog to enjoy? Oh, we found barbecue, not a barbecued hot dog. That sounds like some kind of Chicago thing that you would do. Gotcha. I just thought that was the American 4th of July food. I don't know. We did have apple pie, so check that box. I feel like you're totally covered then. Excellent. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I also had a nice 4th of July. I was on holiday the week leading up to the 4th of July, so we got home to Chicago for the long 4th of July weekend to sort of recover and decompress from our vacation. Cool. Did you have a good vacation? You were with in-laws, which is always tricky. I did, and it's possible some of them are listening. So, yes, I had a great vacation. <laughs> Especially enjoyed your time with your in-laws. Oh, my gosh. My mother-in-law is a total treat. Nice. Good Mary times. Catherine, I hope you are listening, and I know you know that's true. <laughs> I have a feeling you're going to email her this one. Exactly. <laughs> hey, you, should, you should definitely check out episode 35. Yeah, at least the first two minutes. <laughs> well, great. So uh, since we've had a break tonight, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive. And we thought it'd be interesting uh, to look at some of the common mistakes that Jason and I see across e-commerce companies. Uh, and as we were prepping for the show, we were shooting for 10 of the biggest mistakes. And in typical Jason and Scott show spirit, we actually came up with 15. So you, our listeners, are getting 50% more for no additional cost here on the Jason and Scott show. So we're excited to continue to add value to your, your podcast experience. Um, the, we're going to call these the 10 plus five deadliest e-commerce sins. And what I thought was interesting when, you know, we have, we each have different things we focus on and when we're building the list. I thought it was really illustrative because you tend to fo- focus on what I would call merchandising and site optimization and that kind of stuff. And I tend to focus more on, marketing and customer acquisition and, and those kinds of elements. So, so I think it works, uh, works well. And I really look forward to learning more about what you're going to say about how folks can improve the merchandising and site optimization. So with that background, you want to kick it off? Absolutely, Scott. Uh, these are in no particular order, but I do think this first one may be the highest financial value tip I have on the list. Uh, So my number one deadly sin is requiring a account in order to check out or to say it another way, not offering a guest checkout. Um, And this is a a hotly debated 
a practice in uh, e-commerce circles. There, there are a number of very successful sites that do require an account to check out. Uh, you're quite familiar with the famous one called Amazon um, that successfully is able to do that. But my premise is for the overwhelming majority of e-commerce experiences, consumers do not want to create an account and they for sure don't want to create an account before they complete their first order um, and have their first successful relationship with you. And uh, in dozens of client uh, sites, we've we've tested this and added a guest checkout. And conversion almost universally goes up dramatically. Uh, there's a famous case study that's that's I think almost eight years old now that uh, that folks in the industry called the three hundred million dollar button, um, and it talks about an anonymous site that I, I, I will tell you now is Best Buy uh, that at one point uh, did not offer a guest checkout, and when they offered the the when they added a guest checkout feature, they they captured three hundred million dollars of revenue in the first year. Um, so for the overwhelming majority of sites, I think it's a huge mistake to not offer a guest checkout. And as I like to remind folks, uh, when you do a guest checkout, you collect all the information you would need in order to create an account. So it's perfectly fine to offer to create that account after you've captured the order, but asking people to create the account before you capture that first order is just a, an extra mental hurdle that many shoppers aren't prepared to make. And so for that reason, I think it's a huge mistake. So I guess the thinking is, is this because people are like incented based on account creation or something or like, so, so why, and, and I guess that you can email, you can still, you know, do some email marketing to folks, even if they don't create an account, or is that kind of what you're trying to do? You're trying to get them to go through T's and C's so you can get them into your email programs. Is that, is that kind of the driver of why people would not want to have a guest checkout? Yeah, well, I think the biggest reason that folks don't uh, want to offer guest checkout is because they want to uh, be able to store that payment information and make subsequent checkouts lower friction. And the premise is that if I um, create, if I go through the the extra pain of creating that account once, that those account holders in the long run will be much more valuable. Um, and you know, everyone just looks at Amazon and looks at Amazon Prime members and says, "See, you know, those those." users are way more valuable and we want a bunch of users like that. So why not, you know, go through just the minimal extra effort of forcing them to create an account before that, that first checkout. Um, and that of course is a misnomer when you look at a bunch of e-commerce sites and you look at the, the average revenue per account holder versus non-account holders. It's not obvious at all that account holders are more valuable um, and frankly, even when users create an account, an alarming percentage of those users create a new account every time they check out because they don't retain the the knowledge that they had an account. And, you know, then you potentially block them from creating a new account because that email address already exists. And then you send them in this whole bad cycle of password recoveries and all these these other bad things that can happen. To To a lesser extent, I think you're also right. You know, they want you to opt into the email programs. Like, obviously... You, you capture an email address even in a guest checkout because you want to be able to email and order confirmation. Uh, and you could certainly market to them after that order. You know, you could market the opportunity to get on those lists after the order using the email you just captured. Um, but, but there are, there are retailers that would rather get that double opt in up front. But again, you're, you're just, you're optimizing for this idealistic scenario that, doesn't exist for most retailers and most retailers just 
aren't going to be a frequent enough destination for the average consumer that it makes sense to force account creation. So what if we play this to its logical conclusion and don't have registered accounts at all? Yeah. Um, so when third-party digital wallets are good enough, I, I do think that's entirely viable. Uh, I mean, none, you know, this is not a new concept. Microsoft launched this product in 1998 called Microsoft Passport. And the whole notion was, gosh, we should just have your credentials on in the cloud on, the, you know, once and store it. And, you know, every, everyone, ought, you know, you ought to be able to permission any site you want to do business with to access those credentials and not force you to create that stuff over and over again. And, you know, in China, for many users, that's or for the majority of users, that's Alipay. Right. Um, and to a lesser extent in the U.S., that's that's PayPal. Um, and as those kinds of services get more robust, I think it, it's entirely possible that there will be less inclination to, to offer account creation on on all of these individual e-commerce sites. Yeah, and I have to admit, I actually kind of like logging in with the Facebook button because it's already, you know, active on all my devices and it's easy. And but then what's funny is they, you know, a lot of people it's a little bit of a trap. They're like, log in with Facebook, and then they're like, oh, we only need six more pieces of information for you to log in with Facebook. And you're always like, what? I thought this was supposed to be a lot easier. Yeah. So obviously, Facebook is great for social sign, and not very many people have payment information stored on on Facebook yet. Um, but the and social sign-in is even a more controversial one uh, because, to your point, there are a lot of users that really like it, and it can be a lot faster, and it saves you from having to create those individual password, which is a huge mental hurdle for a lot of users. I think there's a, a funny stat out there that three out of five users would rather clean a toilet than invent a new password. Um, and so that certainly argues in favor of the social sign-in. The, the downside of social sign-in are users often forget which social service they used for social sign-in. So most sites <laughs> let you sign in with Facebook or Google, um, and then you, you, know, you come back and you don't remember which one you signed in or you don't remember that you created an account at all. And it, if normal password recovery is bad, um, password recovery when you used a social sign-in is a disaster. Hmm. Cool. Well, that's a good one. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that folks are... Or have a guest check out, and if they don't, they're going to add one soon after listening to this. Um, number two, which is my first one of the deadly sins, is really what, what we found is you, you when you think about customer acquisition, uh, Google is kind of the first word you think about. And one thing we have found over time is Google started with, you, you have kind of three programs we can talk about. So you have uh, obviously SEO or organic, which is the free part of Google. Um, that's on decline because mobile um, reduces the amount of real estate that's that's on the, the page for, for SEO. And then also on even on desktop, Google has kind of consistently pushed down the free results uh, on the page. And Google is in no way incented to, to have a bunch of free results there because their monetization engine is not the free results. So um, – so then you have the sponsored listings, which are commonly called AdWords, which is the program. And then increasing your, increasingly you have product listing ads, or PLAs as we call them in the industry, uh, and it's also known as Google Shopping. So one thing we find a lot of when, when I'm out talking to retailers is they are so addicted to kind of AdWords, they've under-invested in PLAs. And when we look across our customer base, PLAs have gone from zero because it was a free program, you know, literally uh, in I think 2012 is when it went paid. So, you know, 
since then, it's kind of slowly but surely, kind of every year, about ten percent of wallet has gone to PLAs, and you see it in the in the screen real estate. It's even more, and now you're seeing these obnoxious kind of four by three PLAs, and and they're just taking up a ton of real estate um, because they work really well for Google. So one thing we find is we'll we'll go to these very large AdWord uh, customers, and we'll find that they're still like 90% AdWords and maybe 10% PLAs. And they're not sending their whole catalog to Google. They don't believe it works. Um, and a lot of these experiences come from um, either um, frugal and they're still upset that Google's charging for this, uh, which is kind of silly. Uh, but yet they're still spending, you know, tens of millions of dollars on AdWords. Uh, uh, or they tried it, you know, in 2014 and it didn't work. And there's this kind of common misperception that PLAs don't work and therefore they're just going to keep juicing AdWords. So, so we actually have seen kind of a 70% um, PLA, 30% AdWord balance across our entire customer base. We're kind of heading there. We'll get there probably, you know, in the next couple of months. We're, we're on our way to that. So, so that should be a wake-up call to look and see, you know, read – Revisit PLAs. Look, is your entire catalog being put out there? Um, there's a lot of different ways to create target groups and to do the bidding and to be smarter about it. I don't want to go into all that, but but that's something that that we we commonly see is is a huge problem uh, that's out there. Yeah, do you have a um, premise for why that is? Like, I, I talk to a lot of clients that still talk about a uh, fear of data share with Google. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing, but I, I don't really, you know, I, I don't know what data Google's getting with a PLA that they're not effectively getting with an AdWord because with an AdWord, they know the landing page, so they know the product. If you're using analytics, they know the conversion rate. So um, it's not like Google's building this massive catalog, kind of like Amazon has done with their marketplace. Um, so I don't really know what, what data they'd be worried about that's not already out there in the AdWords platform. So, so I think that's a, you know, I, I think the horse is out of the barn and it's dancing around and, and worrying about the barn door at this point is, is kind of, you know, silly if, if you're an AdWords spender. Now, if you're, you know, if you're super Google paranoid and you're not doing AdWords because of that, then yeah, PLAs are just as bad, if not slightly worse than AdWords if a, you know, if you're super concerned about Google being able to see some of your data. Yeah. I mean, there, I think there's an optional element to once you're doing PLAs, the, you know, the other thing that I think really is a best practice, but some people are leery of is then having a local inventory feed. Um, so you can add the in stock nearby icon to those PLAs if you're willing to share your inventory, your local inventory feeds with with Google. And I, I certainly have talked to some retailers that are reticent to share that level of data. Yeah, and that's called uh, LIA, local inventory ads. And um so, so retailers are nervous about the data. Uh, a lot of retailers I've found they really it's a lot of data. So if you're if you've got a thousand stores and that's got a hundred thousand SKUs, um, one of the main problems with that is just getting it out to Google in a timely manner is very hard. And um, you know a lot of these a lot of these retailers are generating these kind of uh, XML based files or CSV or whatever the format is, and they end up being you know many hundreds of gigabytes because of the scale of each store. Uh, and then it takes Google and it takes them like 48 hours to generate it. It takes Google because it's such a large file, a couple days to digest it. And it ends up being a bad consumer experience because uh, the, you know, the product quantities are, are four days old by the time it gets in there. Now there's more sophisticated things you can do. So you can kind of do, a uh, 
kind of what you would call like a big upload and then a uh, kind of a frequent API update to kind of catch up, um, as it were. Um, and, you know, we certainly uh, have that capability and we do it with normal PLAs a lot. Um, we just found that retailers don't have that level of inventory system to be able to do that for, for the local inventory ads. So, so, so the feedback I get on local inventory ads a lot of times is um, concern over the user experience when you get all excited that you see an ad for that size 10 shoe you need and then you click through and the site kind of, and then it's usually kind of awkward, right? Because you usually then end, add on a, land on a page and then you have to kind of go do the store lookup again. And, and then as, if, when you go through all that, then you're kind of like, it's out of stock and you're like, what the heck? It just kind of over at Google, it said it was in stock and now it's not out, not in stock. So, so to mitigate that, what a lot of folks do is they just send a slice of their data and they, they tend to cut out um, a lot of those kinds of products that are either thinly traded and inventoried or have kind of complex style kind of size combination kind of stuff. Um, so I have seen that the the LIA is a lot less popular than a, a general PLA. Got it. And uh, going back to the general PLAs, the the famous retailer in my mind that that you know with a, a few notable exceptions doesn't use PLAs is Amazon. Like, are they not using them because they just simply don't want to give the revenue to their competitor or Google? Or what what do you think their philosophy is? Yeah, and uh, the caveats are some of the Amazon subsidiaries do use it. So Zappos and Quidzy definitely do. And Amazon's gone in and out with Kindle devices over time. Um, and um, I think as of the last time I checked a couple days ago, they were not doing it. Uh, Amazon hasn't publicly stated why they don't do that. But um, if you read some books and some articles about it, you know, internally folks have said on sites like Quora that the feeling is if you think about if you think about at a super high level, who has the best product search? Amazon wants to own that, wants to win that battle. And if they take their approximately 300 million SKUs and up forklift them into Google, then Google will have the union of Amazon and everyone else's inventory. And I think Amazon looks at that and says, that would be stupid. Why, why should we let Google be a better search, you know, as good or better a search engine than we are by giving them our entire inventory? Um, so I, I think it's, you know, the flip side of that coin is um, it's one of the few places that you don't compete with Amazon in online marketing. So if you're in AdWords, for example, Amazon, you know, they they have uh, you know, they seem to bid very aggressively because they can look at the cost of a, the LTV of a customer is very high on Amazon. If they can get them to be prime, that LTV kind of probably multiplies by four to ten. So you do see Amazon very aggressively on AdWords, uh, and then they're awesome on SEO as well. So it's one of the few areas on Google where you can be and not have to compete with Amazon. So that's a positive. But um, to your earlier point about data, that is an example of a company saying, I don't want to do PLA because of the data. Now, now I think they're the one company that has a valid concern there because of the 300 million SKUs they've built over you know, the last 20 years. Yeah, I think that that makes perfect sense. So you've, you've convinced me PLAs are the uh, the investment. And I assume you would say um, uh, make sure they're mobile PLAs as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, um, you know, uh, Google is working on a program where you can actually buy from the PLA. They call it uh, buy on Google uh, or purchase on Google. They, they change the name of these things all the time. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the ways they see as potentially solving this this conversion rate problem you and I talk about on mobile. Yeah. And that, that has been interesting. Um, there have been more use cases where that has worked well than I would have initially thought. Um, I still think it's it's not a perfect solution for everything. And obviously, one of the big challenges there is 
in most cases, you don't want to sell just one SKU. You want to sell a basket of SKUs. And, you know, when you just buy the one product through the, the, the PLA experience, you're, you're in most cases missing the opportunity to upsell and add to cart and, and all of those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So my uh, next tip uh, is also one that I, I feel disproportionately affects uh, financial performance for many sites, and that is not offering free shipping. Um, so the bad piece of news for, for most folks that don't know is the overwhelming majority of e-commerce sales are with free shipping. Um, I think from the latest Comscore data, Q1 of this year, 63% of all E-commerce sales included free shipping. Uh, it free shipping actually spikes in the fourth quarter for holiday, and so it's it's about seventy percent, sixty nine percent in Q four of uh, twenty fifteen, and it'll be even higher this year. Um, and those numbers are just going up. If you go back in time about three years, it was about forty eight percent of of sales were with free shipping. So you know, about three years ago, we passed the fifty percent mark, and now we're running an average of higher than sixty percent and hitting 70% on holiday. And so it, it turns out that we are hardwired um, to disproportionately avoid certain fees, right? So we really don't like taxes and we really don't like fees. Um, and charging for shipping is a huge impediment to, to e-commerce sales. And so, you know, I, I encourage everyone to find a way to put that free shipping icon on their site. Now, the good news is, there's a hundred different ways to offer free shipping and put those magic words on your site. Like that doesn't mean you have to unprofitably ship every order to every customer for free. It means you, you offer free shipping with a threshold and you promote that and you have a good, good user experience about getting users over that threshold or you offer free shipping when you pick up in store, if you're an omni-channel retailer, um, there's a whole host of, low cost tactics you can use to offer free shipping, but it's super important one way or another to offer free shipping for the majority of your, your sales. Yeah. But Jason, it's not really free, is it? Uh, the I'm <laughs> nothing is, is in fact truly <laughs> free. And as we've talked about on this show, the costs for del- giving that free shipping are actually going up. And so, you know, you're, we're seeing retailers have to get, much smarter about managing their shipping costs and spreading their 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 business out across multiple carriers to optimize for cost and um sort of you know take as much friction out of the shipping system as possible because just the um the the raw cost from the big carriers for shipping is is going up and at the same time customer expectations to not pay for that shipping are also going up and that that's that dynamic, you know, puts a ton of strain on the profitability of the e-commerce model for most retailers. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, there, there's a fair number of people that are still holding out on this one. And, and whenever I talk to them, they say, look, we, we don't want the consumer to think it's free. And we feel like if we even charge something, then that avoids us getting on the slippery slope. And I know what my argument is against that. I'm curious, like what you would argue. Yeah, well, I mean, a the the big the 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 threshold from zero dollar shipping to point one cent shipping is the most expensive jump. Like it, it it it's psychology as much as it is rational economics. And so, like we've we've literally done these tests where you offer free shipping, which has a twelve dollar value, 
or you offer $15 off and the customer will take free shipping every single time and twice on Sunday or the the free shipping promotion will sell more goods than the $15 off promotion will. And so it's it's not consumers aren't making rational purchase decision and figuring out the total landed cost of all these goods. They, in the very brief attention span they're going to give you while they try to acquire some item that they need to make their life better and move on with their day, um, they're, they're going to see a giant neon sign that says, you're charging me for free, for shipping. And increasingly, that consumer knows there's a ton of other options on the, the internet to get that same item that won't charge me for shipping. So they don't do the math. They just go to one of the sites that will have a big, bright free shipping logo on the top of their header, um, and they'll feel better about making the purchase from that. Cool. That's, uh, that's exactly what I would say. But I wouldn't have all the cool data you had. So you, thank would, you. you would say it uh, with far less uh, ums and ahs in the sentence. <laughs> I don't know. I probably would just said, hey, you need to talk to this guy, Jason, about this thing. The um, number four on the list, I call this one um, having a fully developed channel strategy. And full disclosure, as one of the founders and CEO, now exec chairman of Channel Advisor, I've spent kind of 15 years. We just had our 15-year anniversary thinking about this one. And um, the way I think about it is there's, uh, call it 200 million-ish is the latest data, I think, from Comscore on the U.S. audience. Maybe it's gotten a little bit higher than that. Uh, and they, you know, these folks shop in different places. There's these little eddies and pools that, where they like to shop, and they have affinities with these sites. And getting them to your site may be impossible. So you should definitely have a site and market it and do all that stuff. But you need to think about what other channels you can put your products on. The three buckets I tend to think of are search, where I talked about that earlier with with AdWords, etc. Comparison shopping engines. PLA is a comparison shopping engine, but there's still many more out there. And then a lot of the in the mobile world, you're seeing this resurgence of new kind of comparison shopping engine kinds of things like Wanilo, and I even kind of view the Pinterest rich pins in that category. Um, and then the last one that that uh, I spend a lot of time talking about is marketplaces, and you know the two the two eight hundred pound gorillas. Well, the one eight hundred pound gorilla is Amazon, and then the four hundred pound gorilla is eBay. Uh, but it's easy to forget that Sears has a marketplace, Newegg, all these other places have marketplaces. Um, and I think an interesting metaphor is go to Google and do a search for one of your most popular products. So I just did randomly a pair of Levi jeans. And when you go there, think about all the paths the consumer is taking from there and where they're going. And what's interesting is a lot of our customers spend a fair amount of time on this, and they can end up with 20 different paths to their products. So, for example, I'm, I'm there now. I've got an Amazon PLA uh, – sorry, AdWords is number two um, – there's a couple marketplaces. eBay is very prominent in the PLAs. Uh, you know, you should be there directly, of course, if you're selling a pair of Levi jeans. And then in SEO, the first result is Levi, and the second one is Amazon. And then you have Sears, eBay again, and the organic. So, so what's interesting is if you kind of think about this strategy, you could have 18 different entry points just from Google, and and think of that as shelf space. So, if if in the physical world you could go and have your product 18 different times on the shelf, and maybe it looked a little different, and the path to it was a little different, you're on different aisles, but you're still getting all this shelf space, you would do that. So, so that's the metaphor I think for having, um, and you know, and it's not just for Google because there's going to be people that just prefer to shop on eBay. You know, eBay has hundreds of millions of registered users it has its own audience uh walmart has a new marketplace they have you know like 
80 or 90 million active users. Um, so it's really easy to forget that these these different audiences pool in different areas, and they may never come to your site. So it's important to get an at-bat by being in these popular kind of top 20-ish uh, websites where you do have the ability to list things either through a search, a comparison shopping engine, or a marketplace. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like It's a little bit cliche, but you know we all talk about this this paradigm shift in in shopper marketing that we used to be able to tell the consumer how we wanted them to behave. And we used to sort of be able to force the behaviors we wanted on them. And now that that completely doesn't work anymore. The the consumer is in charge and and they'll dictate how they they want to interact with you. And if they choose to interact with you through a marketplace or through, you know, uh, a, a CSE or, or any other tool, you you really need to be there. It's a mistake to you know, assume that you can you can change the consumer behavior by only being in the the places that that you want the consumer to go to. Yeah, and a lot of the um, even the platform cart guys are really catching on to this, and they have different names for it. They can call it distributed commerce or democratization of commerce, and they all have kind of a different word because they don't want to use our word, which is kind of channels. Um, but you know, what the most common negative I, I get from from folks is uh and, and the shoe guys are all like this where they're like, well I don't I don't want my brand associated with that brand. But what's always funny to me is um you know all these guys have outlets uh in the real world and where their stuff is half off and they all sell to TJ Maxx and you know but then when they get online they're like ooh I wouldn't want my brand associated with Amazon and eBay. And I don't, it just kind of really doesn't hold a lot of water for me. They're effectively saying, well, you know, there's two thirds of the internet I don't want my product exposed to. Um, and, and it's just kind of a weird argument that doesn't really make logical sense to me. Yep. I, I can imagine some edge cases where it makes sense to opt out of certain, uh, channels. But I think your, your broader point is, you need to have a full channel strategy. Like you, you need to be evaluating being on all those things and make good business decisions about where to be. And your default uh, option should be to be in all of those places, unless there's a darn good reason not to be. Exactly. So transitioning to my next deadly sin, which is number five on our list, is not telling the shopper when they'll get it. Um, so this is alarmingly common on e-commerce sites, but the majority of sites will tell you how many uh, days the shipping is going to take, right? So we're going to ship this two day or we're going to ship this ground and to your zip code, that's going to be four days. Uh, but the majority of the sites won't tell you when they're going to process your order or when those goods will leave the, the site's warehouse and consumers don't care how many days UPS has your product, right? Like they care that they're going to get your product before their vacation or get your product before the party that they're hosting or whatever their use case is for your product. And so it's, it's critically important to know when those goods will arrive. Um, and I would argue that this is one of the fundamental customer experience advantages that Amazon has is, is that they, they're very clear about when you'll get the goods and, they're they're very good at getting the goods to you very quickly. Um, and you know, in a a, a related example, we were uh, talking about a, a new user experience on Amazon uh, today that we'll talk about maybe in another show. But that that someone on my Twitter feed commented, "Hey, that looks a lot like that site Wish." And my sort of smart aleck response to them was, 
Yeah, but Wish promises four to twenty-eight day delivery for goods, and and Amazon, you know, is is offering twelve-hour delivery for most of those goods, and so that you know that's going to win every day of the week and twice on Sundays, and it's free to do. Like, do the math and tell customers when you'll give uh, when the product will arrive at their door, not how how many days uh, you're going to pay UPS to deliver it. Yeah, and. Um you know, what's interesting is Amazon started and it was in the checkout where you would kind of see it. And, and then they got really good at nailing what they said in the checkout. But then they moved it to the item page. And you probably know this. I, I don't really track this that closely, but I don't usually see that on an item page. You know, it's usually most other e-commerce sites, the big guys, it's, it's still kind of back in the cart. Um, so uh, eBay tried to do this. They had something called, uh, I always used to call it Fast and Furious, but I think it was Fast and Free, uh, okay. where they would, they would kind of give you a, uh, a little bit of a range, and then if they were way outside of that range, so they'd say three to six days, and if it ended up being eight, they would refund you your shipping costs kind of thing. Um, but that was almost felt like it was worse because it was kind of like, it was such a big range that it was kind of like, well, you know, I'm assuming the worst, and that's pretty bad. And and, and I think what they... What they were doing is they're taking the the ship and and ship from and the tube zip and, and t- doing some math there, but but it ended up being they took it off. So I assume that it, it had the the opposite strategy. So if, if you are gonna so number one, you know, get really good at it, maybe have it in the checkout, and then number two, if you do move it to that item page, you have to be pretty darn good at it and don't give these wide ranges to give yourself a a, a huge benefit escape because the consumer is going to assume the worst case. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the pilot you're confusing at eBay is the Fast and Furious was the the really small pilot where Vin Diesel actually delivered the goods to you <laughs> in a car. And, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, to- totally agree. And, and the Amazon is a best in class example of also creating scarcity on that product detail page. You know, they'll they'll often tell you order in the next fifty four minutes and get it tomorrow. Yeah, and this is a little teaser. We're going to have one of the guys that came up with that program at eBay on the show in the near future. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, nice. I am uh, uh, titillated to find out more. Good. I'm kidding. I actually know. (laughs) Um, So my number six, uh, and this is one uh, that I see a lot. A lot of So at ChannelVisor, we have about 3,000 customers. And some of them, they're all interesting, love them all. Some of the most interesting ones are very entrepreneurial, and they're born on marketplaces. And we call them mid-market. And, um, and one of my favorite examples was these two brothers that were selling golf clubs called Rock Bottom Golf. And they were maybe doing a million dollars when I first met them. And they've grown it to, I think they're on the IR 500 as like 30 or $40 million a year. Um, so, you know, when they, when, when people, when, when these mid market companies get off a marketplace, it's a great training wheels for e-commerce and they open up their site. What I've found is when we start talking about their site strategy, they spend 99% of their budgets on acquisition. So they're doing everything you can imagine. You know, they're, they're doing Google, they're buying email lists, they're at shows, they're thinking of opening store. They're doing everything to acquire customers. So then I'll ask them some basic questions about, you know, are you doing email marketing? Are you doing segmentation? And many, most of them are doing basic email marketing, but it's kind of like constant contact level or MailChimp level. It's just kind of like broadcast. Um, they're not thinking about, you know, some of the ways to, um, to also uh, do like subscription e-commerce and replenishables and all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's the good news is, and, and a lot of times you ask them why, and they're like, well, you know, the big guys have all this data science they can do, and and we can't afford that. Um, 
the, what's interesting is there's a whole host of companies now that are, are kind of applying a lot of the same logic that, that you could get with cloud-based solutions to retention um, that, that's out there for acquisition. So, you know, the, the old adage, the, the easiest customer to acquire is the one that's already happy, um, it is, is very true in e-commerce. And, and we definitely see, you know, even some of the big guys, some of the IR500 guys do this, but, but we definitely see it in this mid-market where there's this over-focusing on customer acquisition and a not on retention, not enough on retention. Um, full disclosure, I'm on the board of a company, Windsor Circle, they focus on this. Um, there's several others, Retention Science. Um, you probably know uh, more of them than I do. Uh, but, it, but it's a really kind of growing field, and you can plug these things into your CRM, and they'll rec- make recommendations, and they'll say, hey, if you ran a campaign... Um, that you know sold um, you know uh, greenies to people that already bought greenies, and then you ask them to subscribe. This much money could come out of your your existing customer base. So so encourage everyone to really think about retention because we so over focus on customer acquisition. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's funny you you look behind the scenes at most e commerce sites and just look at the number of people that are dedicated to the retention experiences versus the customer acquisition experiences. And it's, it's totally obvious that they would over-focus on acquisition because they, they just, the majority of the team is focused on it. Yeah. Yeah. But they're, it's funny because they're all focused on CAC and LTV. Um, but you don't really don't get any movement in LTV if you don't do the retention piece. So it's, it's a little outbalanced and I'm, I'm not exactly sure why, but, but I think, um, you know, companies that, that rebalance that will see really nice dividends paid. Yep. Uh, uh, for sure, if you come to me and say, hey, I need a short term uh, revenue or, or I'm sorry, uh, gross margin kiss, uh, I'm always going to say that, you know, we can get a faster ROI from from conversion and, and uh, uh, retention programs than we can from new customer acquisition in, in the long run. Like the answer is those two activities have to be and not or. Um, so my number seven tip is not having a prominent search box on your uh, e-commerce site and particularly in the header of your e-commerce site. Um, so for the majority of e-commerce experiences, the folks with the highest purchase intent that land on the site are going to use that search box. If they don't parachute into a particular product detail page that they're going to buy because they came straight from a a, a Google AdWords or PLA or something like that, then, uh, then they're, they're going to use search to find the product. And those users that use search have much higher buying intent than the browsers that use the traditional menu navigation on most sites. Um, and so that, that search box is some of the most profitable, valuable retail uh, real estate on the site. And in a shocking number of cases the search box isn't very prominent or friendly and it's actually getting worse because a lot of sites are moving to responsive design. They feel they can't fit a, a visible search box in their mobile experience. And then they, they, you know, so they hide it behind an icon and they just give you a search icon and they assume users will click that icon and open a search box, which in many cases turns out not to be the case, but then they carry that same metaphor to their desktop experience even though there's plenty of re- real estate to have that prominent search box on the desktop experience. So whenever we take search out from behind that hidden icon and show you a big search box, uh, we get more searches and we get higher conversion. And actually, just the size of that box, making it like overly visually prominent, makes a big difference in conversion. 
Um, and I guess a, a related pet peeve, a, way, way too many retailers put a big box right above the search box where they're asking you to enter your email address that they would like you to capture. Um, and when the, those when those retailers have um, on-site analytics, like they're using Clicktail or Crazy Egg or something like that, you you can find this really funny thing, which is that a majority of users type their search terms into the email box. Because <laughs> I, I mean, you, you know, people we just way overestimate how much attention our site is getting, right? Like these are, these consumers are busy; they're doing other things. They have one baby on their lap; the other baby's crawling across the kitchen floor to the poison under the counter, and they, you know, they they just have a few seconds to complete that purchase, and so we have to make it really easy for them. And part of that is. There should be a big text field for search, and it should be the only big text field on the top of the site because that's become the e-commerce convention. Yeah, someone was pointing out to me, uh, and and I don't track this on a daily basis, but uh, Target.com um, now has a search bar that's literally like three-quarters the width of the page. It's at the top. Uh, it's it's tall. It's the only data entry. I think it's even persistent when you scroll. Um, and, you know, so they are already taking your advice. And I, I remember it being kind of small and to the right and a little bit hard to find. Um, and I think, you know, one of my pet peeves on mobile, you mentioned this, but sometimes it's even in the hamburger menu. And I'm like, gosh, how do I search this thing? And, and you know, that's terrible to have it even buried kind of inside of a menu, not even having an icon on the homepage. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. And it happens way too often. And it's almost becoming the trend to hide the search box. And I would argue it's only becoming a trend for people that aren't focused on making money on their site. <laughs> harsh okay um so i think we're up to number eight and uh this is one i put on here because i know this is near and dear to your heart uh and this is where you still find a lot of folks uh really focused on building an app versus having responsive design uh, so uh, i see this a lot i i'm not an expert on this but it just feels like when you look at all the data you know, there's eight apps that kind of are in the use set, and then it really falls off from there. If you look at the Comscore data, and consumers are using the mobile browsers, and um, you know, I think in, in many retailers have put, you know, if they've got X dollars, they're putting ninety percent in the app and ten into responsive design for the mobile web. And I think that should probably be reversed for the vast majority of retailers as they think about mobile. And and you know, it goes without saying, mobile is is super important. And and you could argue this could be like the number one thing that that people need to think about because they're so far behind on mobile. I think. Yeah, uh, obviously, I totally agree. I uh, one semantic like. Uh, uh, I tend to not focus on responsive design, uh, particularly like that's one tactic in a set of tactics, but I just more generically would say a mobile optimized site. And so uh, I think it's a huge mistake to spend a big focus on an app and not have a great mobile optimized site. And I feel like an app can be a value add thing to have after you've really nailed the mobile optimized site, but the mobile optimized site is overwhelmingly the majority of your reach. And that's why it's most important and, you know, you look across the ecosystem of sites and you still find a bunch of sites that literally don't have a mobile experience at all. So they're pinch and zoom or way more frequently they outsource their mobile site to a third party. And those are usually these dot sites, which, you know, Google has said from a search standpoint, they're depreciating and, and is a bad experience for a variety of reasons. And now, like adding insult to injury to some of these these uh, companies that focus too much on app versus their mobile optimized site the new thing is 
they're putting these annoying interstitials on their mobile site trying to get you to download their app. So, you know, you you in the beginning talked about how important PLAs are, right? And a super common experience on the web right now is you you do a search on Google on your mobile phone, you find a product you want to buy, you click that product, and it sends you to a site that then pops up a interstitial and says, hey, don't buy that product right now, download our app. <laughs> and, you know, if the user does download the app, like a, it, it's it's you know semi a miracle if they're successful because they have to know their Apple ID, which forty something percent of users don't know. Um, but once they get that app installed and launch that app, it's not taking them to the product they saw on the the PLA that started this whole jo- uh, this whole voyage, right? So I just I feel like there's too many retailers that have a silly KPI around app downloads. And that that causes all of these bad behaviors and missed financial opportunities with mobile optimized sites. Hmm. And why are you so anal about the word responsive versus mobile optimized? Like, what what's the right way to do it? Yeah. Well, so um, the language in our industry is sort of imprecise. There's an engineer that invented this this concept of responsive design, and he really meant it to be a specific set of programming tactics. And so it's essentially uh, using uh, a CSS and, and a tool called Media Queries to find out what how wide the viewport of your browser is and adjust the experience to the width of the browser using a fluid layout. And so it's a set of specific tactics. And Building a site that just uses those tactics for me is not a best practice. So for number one, sites that are truly responsive tend to perform really poorly and have bad page load times. Uh, Number two, um, there's a lot of times when we actually want a different experience on the desktop than we have on mobile. So I I would like to show you a different number of search results when you do a a desktop site search versus a mobile search. I'd like to show you a different number of product tiles on a category page um, when when you're on a mobile experience versus a desktop. Um, And so there's, there's this general notion of mobile optimized sites, which tend to use things like responsive design, but also use things like um, device identification and server-side adaption, where where I just send the the right bits of code to your browser based on what device I know you have, and that ends up giving you a better a better user experience and faster faster stuff. So uh, for the uh, for the presentation layer developers in the audience, I, I don't recommend purely using responsive design. But for most business users, when they say responsive, all they really mean is a mobile optimized site that has one URL that looks great on a, a desktop browser and on a mobile phone. And I, I totally agree that that's very important. Okay, so responsive just isn't enough. You have to really optimize the whole thing. Exactly. Got it. Um, cool. So... Uh, Going to number nine, it's a lack of social proof. Um, so uh, social proof is this concept that people want to know that shoppers like themselves have made this purchase decision before them and had a good outcome. And so the most famous version of social proof we have in e-commerce is ratings and reviews. And shockingly, ratings and reviews are still not ubiquitous on e-commerce site. There's still a surprising percentage of sites that are holdout and holdouts and don't have ratings and reviews. And I, I'm still shocked when I have to have a, a, a debate with a business owner about the value of ratings and reviews. Like it's, it's, it's one of the most proven things we have in e-commerce is that ratings and reviews are at the very top of 
the decision tree for purchases. It's one of the primary reasons that Amazon has a big advantage is because they they have this enormous repository of ratings and reviews. But I, you know, I would point out there's a bunch of ways to offer social proof. Ratings and reviews are just one. A question and answer is another very good one that is underutilized by a bunch of sites. Um, other forms of user generated content. So, you know, showing showing pictures of other users that they've uploaded to Instagram or or to um, Snapchat um, of them using this product are all great forms of social proof. Um, that for the right type of product can make a lot of sense. And so I'm I'm constantly surprised when I see sites that are really like completely devoid of any flavor of social proof. Hmm. The the social, the thing that you know, I spend so much time on Amazon, one thing I've noticed is all these sites that have reviews, they're so sparsely populated, except for some folks like Backcountry seems to have like a very aggressive review group um and then niche sites like ebags has a lot of reviews and um but it's interesting so if i go not to pick on anyone specifically but like best buy target walmart um i find they just don't really have the density of reviews that i would get on amazon so like video games if i'm looking at an interesting new game um you know there may be like two reviews and you go to amazon and there's like 50 so um yeah is it is it valid to kind of say if if you're not going to have people using it is does it actually have kind of a negative impact yeah absolutely um like poorly executed social proof programs like rating or ratings and reviews can absolutely have a negative impact on conversion. So the, the least influential aspect of, of ratings and reviews is the average score, right? Like people care a lot more how many you got and they want to see a diversity of scores. Like that tells them that, that, uh, a lot of people bought that product, right? And so there, there have been these funny studies on Yelp. You know, are people going to go to the restaurant that's four stars and has 12 reviews, or are they going to go to the restaurant that's three and a half stars and has uh, 1,200 reviews? And overwhelmingly, they'll go to the 1,200 review restaurant because they feel like that's just a much more popular choice. Um, and so that does drive you to a bunch of best practices that are rarely used. If you land on a product detail page that has no reviews, um, don't put a big icon at the top of the page that says zero reviews, zero stars, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, this is all done programmatically. So you can change that content. You can, you can, you know, have a call to action to write a review. Um, very few people write reviews from the product detail pages. So the, the best practices for getting ratings and reviews is to have an outbound marketing campaign, um, you know, targeted at those known purchasers of product to get them to write reviews. And in a perfect world, you'd like to target them sometime after they brought the, bought the product, not immediately after they bought it. And so you, you see those retailers that have a good density of reviews. It's almost always because they did it on purpose. They have people and resources dedicated to soliciting um, the, those reviews. Um, but I would you know, point out, even if you're in a category or you're a retailer where collecting those ratings and reviews is really hard, there are other forms of social proof that you can come up with. Take the one review you have and turn it into a testimonial, like, because then it looks like you curated them and just showed one review as opposed to uh, inviting the whole world to write reviews and only one consumer accepted or use use some of the like Olapic or Bizarre Voice curation features to show user generated images instead of reviews or, you know, have an active Q&A community, you know, do do something else to have a good form of social proof um, is is first and foremost. And then, you know, too much depth for this episode, but in another episode we'll talk 
there's a bunch of best practices within ratings and reviews, like letting people see ratings and reviews from users that are more like them, right? Like, so, that, you know, the example I always use is, uh, you know, good golfers don't want to read my review of golf clubs. They want to read the reviews of other good golfers. So give them tools to to know that those reviews are coming from users that are like them and things like that. Hmm. Interesting. Cool. Um, so we're up to number 10, and I have a feeling we're going to have to go fast because we're, we're uh, in true Jason and Scott format. We're, we're taking like twice as long per item as we probably should. So I'll go through this one fast. And, and I call this one um, number 10 here, omni-channel tail wagging the digital dog. And two examples of this. And so this is for those retailers that have a store and they're, they're you know, a store footprint and they're digital and how they're integrating it. Um, uh, I had an interesting meeting one time with someone and talking about their e-commerce efforts, you know, kind of a uh, someone that had, I think, a couple hundred stores. And they were really excited about e-commerce because it was growing. And then I was, I was, you know, I always like to kind of see the difference in selection between a, a typical store and online and I asked the question and they were like oh it's awesome you know we you know our, our store has 10,000 items and for the longest time e-commerce had 5,000 and now we just got it up to parity with the store and I was like wow that's kind of crazy because most people view you know the endless aisle and, and online gives you the ability to have a superset of inventory not an exact match or a subset uh, and they were like well then they wouldn't be able to find it in the store. And I was kind of like, well, that's, you know, I think, I think consumers could get their head around that because that's how everyone else does it. And it was an interesting kind of argument that their belief was that they wanted store and online parity because they felt like it would confuse the customer to have stuff available online that wasn't in the store. Um, so it just felt like, you know, this, this kind of old school store mentality kind of, you know, really um, hurting the e-commerce experience. Another one I see works the other way is a lot of these retailers with, with Omnichannel, they have these, these point of sales systems from, I don't know when they're from, like 1965 or something, uh, and they have poor inventory levels, and they all implement buy online, pick up in store, which which is theoretically awesome, until you drive to that store, you think you're getting the baseball cleat your son needs, and they're like, yeah, I went to try to find it, and we really don't have that. It, you know, It's probably in someone's cart, is usually what they'll say. Uh, and and that's, that's a really terrible experience, because now I've kind of committed to that experience, and, and they haven't dotted the I's and crossed the T's. So, so those are ones I've seen that, you know, they, they really take away from the whole omni-channel experience the way it's supposed to work. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, you're, you're calling out the retailers that are just seeking parity uh, between digital and, and retail. Like there, there still are major retailers that feel like retail should be fundamentally advantaged over digital. Right. So I, I feel like in the, the last shareholder meeting, Costco like overtly said like, Hey, we, you know, we're not interested in a lot of these digital tactics that give uh, consumers a reason not to visit our stores, which seems crazy to me. And I still talk to retailers that have um, buy online, pick up in store experiences or ship from store experiences where once the inventory level gets low, um, they they won't sell it online. And you go, oh, that's smart. You're doing that because you have no confidence in your inventory and you don't want them to come up and have it be empty, right? And there would at least be a, a decent argument against that kind of system. But they, but but I have heard from multiple retailers, no, I don't want to sell my last one of an item to an online customer because then it won't be on the shelf when an in-store customer comes in to buy it. <laughs> and you're like, wait a minute, you're avoiding selling the item uh today in the hopes that you might sell the item tomorrow. <laughs> wow. 
Yeah. I guess they just think the store customer is more valuable. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously just a, a mindset that, that, you know, some, some older retailers haven't, haven't, uh, migrated beyond yet. But, uh, you know, I think those, those attitudes are falling by the wayside pretty quickly is the good news. Um, so I will just jump into our five bonus tips uh, at, at a much higher level of brevity. Um, so number 11, uh, there are still a shocking number of sites that have very poor product photography. Um, in, in the big picture, it turns out that the imagery is the most important element of that product detail page. And that's really the thing that sells the product. And, you know, too often uh, retailers or brands invest in a bunch of other parts of the experience and under invest in having great aspirational photography of their products or they have great pr- photography and don't, don't leverage it in their, their product detail layout. Yeah. And this kind of goes into a, a bucket of where um, again, I'm not a site guy, but, but when I talk to people about their site, they, they always talk about the home page and the carousel and the curation on the home page. Um, but what's funny is I, I think if you, if you looked at the analytics, you would find that the, the sum of product detail pages is usually much greater than the category pages and the home page. Um, so uh, so I think people really underinvest on that product detail page to your point of, pro- of product photography, um, just great descriptions, uh, lots of up clear in front. We mentioned, sh- you know, free shipping or tell me when it's going to ship. All that stuff needs to be on that page. And I think people, if there's a pie chart of their attention, they seem to kind of have this human element of putting like 80% onto that homepage because I think as merchants, they like feel that that's really going to where they have this huge impact and all the storytelling and stuff, um, which is great. And I'm sure it, it does move the needle, but imagine if you put that storytelling down at the product level, I, I think, I think people have this pyramid inverted pyramid kind of mentality and it. They need to kind of like flip that pyramid and put the product descriptions up top versus the homepage. Yeah, that, that's a great point, Scott, because that, you know, too many people have this metaphor that the the um, online is just a digital version of the store, right? And so that homepage is the front door to the store. Like, obviously, that's where I should have my best experience because everyone has to walk by the front door. And the problem is that the metaphor is flawed. Like, digital is a store without a roof, and all your users can parachute in to any shelf they want, right? And to your point, the overwhelming majority of users start their experience at some page other than the homepage. And, uh, you, you mentioned carousels, uh, a year ago, I would have put carousels on this list. Cause it turns out that homepage carousels are a totally stupid feature that, that don't work well. Um, and that people shouldn't be using, but I've actually stopped even having that, that conversation with clients because to your point, I don't care. Like, um, it's a big religious argument about the carousel and it's on the homepage and it doesn't influence that many people. I'll, I'll, you know, Uh, concede that point and let them keep their carousel if they'll give me what I want on the product detail page. And I know in the long run, I'll help them make a lot more money um, by doing that trade-off. Is there a good data on that? Like how, how much traffic is on the product detail versus the non-product detail pages? Is there? So I haven't seen a public study that I can cite for you, but I can tell you that like when we're having these conversations with, with uh, retailers and particularly when we're contemplating a very meaningful site design, like one of the things we'll always pull are um, the uh, 
a traffic by page template as opposed to by URL, right? So, you know, how many people are coming to the homepage template? How many people are coming to the category template? How many people are coming to the search template? How many people are coming to that PDP template? And the PDP template is by far the highest trafficked template on every site. Now, you know, as, as you'll note, Amazon has 300 million PDPs and they only have one homepage. So if I look at URLs, which is how, you know, most analytics tools are designed to to report, it looks like the homepage is the highest traffic page. But when I look at templates, which is a little bit more work to figure out, that that PDP is much more valuable. Hmm. Cool. That was always my intuition, but it's good to have it reaffirmed. I I very rarely have seen uh, it not be the highest volume page. And obviously, it, it's mostly not going to be the highest volume page when there's very few products on the on the site or where the site inventory is very tertiary and changes a lot. Um, so jumping into my uh, last one's number uh, 12 is just fundamentally too much checkout friction. Um, so, you know, this is where you make or break your financial performance on e-commerce sites. There's a huge amount of cart abandonment and checkout abandonment. And the easiest way to make money is to fix some of that. And fixing that almost always means reducing friction. And so that's, that's uh, eliminating fields that aren't absolutely necessary. That's, you know, taking all the the extra fluff off your site when people are in the checkout funnel, right? And you, you go to a bunch of sites and they still have their whole header and footer live on the checkout funnel. And so they're, they're offering you the option to read the about us or sign up for an email list in the middle of the purchase process, right? And if you think about a store checkout experience, no one would ever do any of those marketing activities in the middle of a store checkout activity, but, but you know, people don't seem to think very much of doing it online and it, it really hurts them. And there's just, you know, we could do a whole show about the 15 deadly sins of checkout friction. Um, but suffice it to say that that's a, a, a super important area and, and the most common practices in checkout still have a ton of friction in them. Um, so a couple of things kind of related to that. Oh, Number 13 on my list is pricing surprises. And you alluded to another kind of surprise earlier that until you get to the checkout page, you don't know when you're going to get the product. Um, but but very often when you go to that that checkout page is also the first time you see sales tax. It's often the first time you see shipping charges. And all of those surprises are the number one reason for, for checkout abandonment. And so no one should ever get to that checkout experience and learn something new that adversely affects their their interest in purchasing from you. If you have any bad news, if you are going to charge for shipping, you need to make sure they know that before they add the product to cart. If you're going to charge tax, you need to uh, give them visibility to that um, before they go into the checkout experience because surprises will kill you in terms of checkout conversion. Um, one that I blogged about before uh, is a there's a very specific field on checkout which is super expensive, and that's the promo field, right? So irony... A bunch of sites, as we talked about earlier, you know, don't have a very big prominent box on the on on their uh, site header for search. Um, on the flip side, most site checkouts have a giant prominent box for promo field, um, and the majority of people purchasing don't have a promo code. And so you're sort of saying to someone in the middle of checking out, "By the way, you're the only sucker paying full price for this. Everyone else has a promo code that they're typing into this field and getting some kind of discount, right?" and the you know a huge percentage of shoppers when they see that blank promo field 
immediately abandon your site and go to retail me not or go to google and do a search for for promo codes and you know that that starts this whole cycle of of bad outcomes that don't have them coming back to your site um and so you certainly need a way for users to to enter a promo code and do that with low friction but having a giant field is not the way to do it like so we very often we have like a, a link that says, you know, uh, promo code. And, and when you click it, it expands to give you a text box as opposed to showing you a big empty text box that you feel bad leaving empty. And, uh, then, and then uh, number 15, my sort of final uh, of the deadly sins is just having a site that is too slow. Um, and that's, you know, uh, having pages that load too slowly um, and again, we could do a whole show on page performance and how to measure it and how to set goals and all those things. But suffice it to say that most sites are very slow and on average are getting slower every year. And a big part of that is that all of these sites are adding more and more third-party utilities and third-party tags to the site. And all those vendors have this tell this little um, half-truth that I call the biggest lie in e-commerce, which is it's just one tag. It has no effect on page performance. Um, Because I I visit these sites, and there are 60 of those tags, and they absolutely have a a, a cumulative effect on page performance. And these days, when the majority of our traffic is coming from mobile, that performance penalty becomes enormous. Like having 60 third-party tags on your site on a mobile um, experience is deadly because each DNS lookup over the cellular network is much slower than it is over a, a, a hardline connection. And it, it just cumulatively more people are moving to mobile. And as a result, uh, the average page load time is getting worse every year for e-commerce and those slower loading pages uh, do not convert as well. Yeah. And, and Google factors that into their mobile SEO algorithm and they'll, you know, they'll put you in the penalty box if you're taking a long time to load. And um, an interesting news item I saw is eBay is actually working on, um, you know, experimenting with replatforming essentially onto this Google AMP platform, which is primarily for, for uh, content sites. But now you're starting to see more dynamic sites look at it and say, hmm. If we use that, uh, and, and you know, eBay's obsessed with SEO, so I think there must be some hook there where they they probably said to Google, "What what else can we do to improve our SEO?" And Google's like, "Well, you know, the fastest mobile thing is this AMP framework we have, where where essentially Google hosts the page and, and it makes it super snappy." And Facebook has their own program, and so it's going to be interesting down the road if if you play this out to the extreme, will e-commerce platforms have to almost be "Quote unquote," replatformed or or kind of shared across these mobile networks that that are even that much faster. Yeah, absolutely. the 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 mobile accelerated pages, the map pages, which I think is what you're talking about, um, is a, a new technology that's very promising, and it's a little tricky right now to figure out how to use it for the the kind of dynamic pages that that most e-commerce sites have. But um, there are lots of other technologies that are being introduced into the browser um, and into the web standards every day that enable us to make faster pages. And the challenge is you just go to most site owners and they don't have dedicated staff or dedicated resources or dedicated sprint cycles to improving page speed. And frankly, very few um, site operators are even very savvy about how to measure page speed or how to set goals for page speed. And, you know, it's the old joke, like, you know, it's hard to lose weight if you don't have a scale. Um, in, in most cases, like 
retailers just need to get smarter about how to set he- uh, goals and KPIs for page speed and then dedicate people to achieving those goals. The, the good news is it, all the tactics you need to achieve them are out there. It just has to be a priority. Yeah, absolutely. So that wraps up our 15 deadly sins. Um, and as per usual, we're, we're slightly over time. Uh, but Scott, next week, uh, I think we're going to record the show on set on uh, July 12th. And that is a special date. Is it not? It is. That is Amazon prime day. So it is kind of a, a bit of a secret and Amazon just around the fourth announced the Amazon prime day this year will be on the 12th. Um, so either on the 12th or early on the 13th, we'll record a show kind of talking about what we saw and give some data and um, some, you know, how did it go last year was, was really interesting. Um, it exceeded, I think, every seller's expectations, but a lot of buyers were not happy because there are all these deals and they sold out by like 9 a.m. Um, so, you know, there was, there was a, a, um, a lack of deals after later in the day, especially on the West Coast. And, and there was a little bit of social backlash. So this year it looks like Amazon has the numbers I'm seeing are hundreds of thousands of deals. So I think they learned a lot last year and they're going to be spreading them out. And they've more than doubled, doubled or tripled the third party participation in the deals that are going to be rolling out. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it goes. Last year, uh, it was as big as Black Friday. For, for a lot of our customers, which was pretty mind-blowing considering usually this time of year is really, really boring in the world of e-commerce. So um, it's interesting to see if they can kind of turn this into a de facto like singles day kind of thing that, that Alibaba created. Um, so far, it, it you know with one data point, it, it, it's off to a good start and it'll be interesting to see how it does this year. Yeah, I, uh, I'm very bullish on Amazon's Prime Day. Like, I think they're going to be much bigger and better than last year and have better overall consumer sentiment. So um, assuming I'm right on that, the thing I'm going to be really interested in watching is how other retailers respond. So, you know, last year, a bunch of other retailers tried to jump on the bandwagon and ironically sort of celebrate Amazon's 20th anniversary with them. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see whether they double down on that tactic and try to, you know, uh, ride on Amazon's coattails on Prime Day or whether they take some other tactic. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to see. Yeah. Um, So with that, we're going to wrap episode 35. And I will remind our users that uh, if you haven't taken an opportunity yet, we'd love it for you to go to iTunes and write us a review, going back to that social proof point. Um, And if you'd like to continue the dialogue, we'd encourage you to visit the official Jason and Scott Show Facebook page and make a post. And we'll be happy to chat with you about any of the topics we covered on this week's show or anything else that you're interested in. Um, So with that, I will wish all our listeners a happy commercing. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave a review. 